I feel like we should all like, maybe that's our joke is like, while there's a lot of crazy shit going on in the world, we have to admit we don't really have the platform to influence the dialogue at all. So let's just get into the banality of F1, shall we? If you want to design a pro Israel F1 counter, you got to chop off like six races. I mean, I think many people would not be opposed to that. (laughs) Yeah, I understand. But like the ship is kind of fucking sailed. Like, all right, let's just disregard. Qatar was weird, huh? (laughs) Fucking run it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We're in it. Run the fucking intro. Okay. Uh, Hold on. Let me find it. Oh, Brick killed a guy. That's not it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hold on, wait a minute. I thought I, oh, I thought I had it. Hold on. Fucking thing. Oh wait, no, suck. no. Here we go. <laughs> Three lights, four lights, five laps. Pause. Go, go, go. He has been told to come in lap after lap after lap, and what does he do? He ignores them. A committee meeting about it. Stick it on and send him out. Ladies and gentlemen, we back. Welcome to Unqualified. This is Graham. I am joined by my main man, G. As it was true on the last podcast we published, it has been over a month since we have talked. And what can we say? Hey, man, life gets in the way. Uh, We're coming to you guys at an unfortunate time. The world, it seems, is even more on fire than it was before, which we we didn't think was possible. But the track at Qatar was also on fire. Tired eggs at an all-time high. And I think what we have both agreed upon, Gerald, was what we would just call a weird weekend overall for maybe some pretty unexpected reasons. So a lot to unpack here. It is great to see your face per usual. How you doing, bud? Brilliant, man. Brilliant. Better than the drivers after that GP for sure. But as you said, yeah, it felt like a weird weekend from top to bottom. I mean, sprint weekend, which I'm averse to anyway. So that probably tinges my distaste for the weekend overall. But between a track being recently resurfaced and obviously causing the driver's issue, particularly early in the weekend during practice, excess track limits, changing track limits, tire limitations because of tire damage, then obviously the heat during the GP. And to top it all off, the World Driver Championship closed in probably the most unceremonious fashion possible. But let's admit it. Was it going to end in some sort of ceremonious way anyway? Probably not. But I guess recapping the highlights, Verstappen locked down championship number three, while Perez, I guess to put it nicely, continues to struggle. Uh, (laughs) Meanwhile, Mercedes had their own struggles and basically threw away a golden opportunity to secure their second place in the Constructors' Championship over Ferrari. And drivers. And drivers. Lewis could have made up a lot of ground on Perez. Yes, he could have. Um, and then McLaren continued resurgence. And I mean, we would, we said closing the gap, but I mean, it is closed at this point and it is one race away from bumping Aston back to fifth, which who would have thought that after, you know, around the summer break, crazy turn of fate, but I rattled off a bunch there. I guess I'm just curious. What was your reaction? What was like the highlights or the lowlights for you? 
as you tuned in this weekend. Can we just quickly pour one out for the poor Red Bull mechanics who had to celebrate Max's driver's championship on the night of the sprint race and then literally stay up all night and fix Checo's car to get him ready the next day? Like, what a weird weekend for Red Bull in terms of one driver just sealed the championship, the other one couldn't be more lost in the forest, and your driver sealed it on a race night that wasn't actually a race and is like totally insignificant in the broad earth one calendar like that. Like that is weird. And also the fact that Piastri won his first race, quote unquote, Ugh, while that was uh, happening. And Matt, like, it was like, it was weird, man. Like, I don't really know how I thought they did a pretty good job on the F1 TV pro broadcast of like, kind of trying to like toe the line as best they could and create excitement. But like, there, I mean, there's kind of nothing you, you can do with that plot. Like, it was well, a bit like of a that, dog shit script. I like that little that little humble brag you just dropped there. F1 well, TV Pro. He's not a regular I know. subscriber. I, Big dog. You've, you've over made here. this joke God to me damn. before. It's a shared subscription. It's just like it's a toilet paper script. You know what I mean? It's just like getting handed the script to Sharknado, and it's just like, yeah, this is gonna make five dollars hey, at the box. Well, you office. got a banger, like, you just keep turning <laughs> them out. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, really it, a tale of two tapes for for Red Bull. I mean the sad thing being you would think as you get later in the season, you in a lot of these teams, you'd like to see some kind of convergence. But I mean, the two drivers just keep moving further and further away, it seems. And yeah, I mean, talk about frustration, but being powered to repair that car overnight based on the adrenaline of, you know, another championship winning car. But the contrast is clear. And I got to say, you touched on a nerve with the whole Piastri being the first race winner, especially like, I think it was like in a Norris interview or something. They asked him about Piastri winning his first race and like, when's his going to come? And I wish he would have just said, first off, it's not a fucking real race. So still winless. Like, let's be clear. But so that just got to me. It's not a real race, people. Let's stop acting like it is. Yeah. They especially kinda, when they... Max doesn't... He, Let's be honest. He did not try in that sprint qualifying. That's why somebody else is on pole. The gap that he had all weekend, the dude was taking it easy and make sure he didn't pull a Lance Stroll and not be able to start the race, you know, in a couple hours. Right. So that was just bullshit to me. Yeah. The track conditions for that one shot qualifying were absurd, like uh, unworkable, basically. So um, given how dusty the track was and the temperatures were crazy because it was in the daylight and it was hot enough at night. You're right. It was a little bit fluky. Um, but Well, before we delve into all things Red Bull and more partic- in, in particular Perez, obviously the big storyline coming out of the race itself was the heat. Sargent retired early. I believe the only driver to do so based on the conditions and then pretty much after the fact, I mean, you saw in the cool down room, both Max and and Piastri sitting on the ground. Really, Norris was the only one that seemed to have a pep in his step, but even he was was talking about the difficulty of the race. Albon, I'm sorry, uh, Ocon threw up in his helmet, apparently. Uh, somebody else was passing out in the high-speed corners. I think maybe that was Ocon that said that as well. And then Stroll. Lance Stroll had to stumble out of his car um, and, and directly over to the, for the ambulance for medical assistance. But what did you make of that as a condition? Did you, did you find sympathy with the drivers or, or did you find it a, to be a bit overblown? I'm going to channel my inner Stephen A. Smith here. When I say 
We don't care. I'm gonna say we don't care at all. I don't care. I think that if you can't take the heat, get out of the damn kitchen. Like is kind of my general disposition. I don't think it was a safety hazard. I don't believe Lance Stroll for a single effing second when he says he was passing out around high speed turns. Because you know what? If he was passing out around high speed turns, his clumsy ass, which is already prone to hitting the wall, would have definitely hit the effing wall. So you're not going to convince me you lost consciousness and that's your excuse for going over track limits. Give me an effing break. I am not here for it. If you want to be competing at the, these guys have gotten way too pampered over time. And you know what? This is going to sound really bad, but like maybe we need an accident for people to get in touch with their mortality a little bit sitting in these freaking rocket ships. You know, it's just like they're too pampered. They've gone from, you know, backpacking in Alaska in the 80s and 90s of just like rugged terrain, may get mauled by a bear, and now they're like glamping in Africa. Everything's all sorted for you. The cars are too safe. You know, they're just they're complaining if their seat gets a little hot. You know, it's like... It's absurd. Just drive the freaking car. Uh, you know, you signed up for a dangerous sport. You were not guaranteed to be in a a perfect, you know, habitable environment for an hour and a half during every race. Like, get over it. Sure, like, could F1 be a little bit more courteous to them and put Qatar further, like, in the calendar towards the winter months? Yeah, sure. The World Cup was in November. But, like, nobody died. Get over it. I'm not here for your sob story, especially you, Lance Stroll. He's the one that pissed me off more than anybody. Like, Alonzo, Alonzo, he said during the race, my seat is hot. Could you do something at the pit window, right? Like, he could feel like, and then, you know, he got his water after the post-race, did his interviews, and he was, like, totally fine. He wasn't being a bitch about it. So, like, Ocon threw up in his helmet, and he wasn't, like, crying, like, in his post-race. Like, Perez wasn't crying. Piastri was laid on the floor. Norris was talking shit in the post race. Like, I guess he was like, Oh, are you, are you guys tired? And he's like, or whatever. He's like, I guess they are. So yeah, I ah, dude. It's to me, it's like Lance, you couldn't make it any more obvious that you don't belong here. than your general disposition in the face of even the slightest bit of adversity, like not here for it. Don't believe it for a second. I didn't see Max complain. I, I didn't see a lot of guys at the bottom of the grid complain. Like, sorry. So it seems you're taking the 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 literal if you can't take the heat get out of the kitchen stance. Yeah, pretty sure. So do I you said think this was exactly. just? <laughs> do you think this was just a you know half of the grid felt worse and so they they found some justification for performance uh, as a result of that and then do you chalk that up for Sergeant? I mean, do you make the same kind of proclamations for I mean, Sergeant that you do for Stroll of hey, he's I mean, not cutting they, it. The man had to bail out early. Like what the hell is that? It's hard to know if they invented his whole, like, he was showing flu-like symptoms thing to make the story more convenient and believable. Um, like pre-race? Stroll, yeah, or, but uh, that's Sergeant the thing is, like, that, yeah. well, that's what they said after the fact, but, like, nobody around the paddock that whole weekend could in any way triangulate the fact that he appeared to have had flu-like symptoms. So that, to me, is, like, something that the team inserted afterwards to make it, like, a little bit ho- less harsh on Sergeant for not being able to finish the race, but... If I'm betting, like if you asked me to put money on it, I would say he just couldn't finish the race. There was nothing wrong with him. He just wasn't hydrated and wasn't prepared physically for that race. And again, I go back to, you couldn't make it any more obvious to me that you don't belong. Like, I know that's harsh, but like, I I don't know. I just don't buy it. Yeah, unfortunately, it's one of those. Liam Lawson clearly belongs, and he's had a whole lot less time to prepare and acclimate himself to it. Like, yeah, for for Sergeant in particular, it did feel like one of those capstone moments where 
you know, there's a number of reasons why he's in the proverbial hot seat and his inability to handle the literal hot seat sort of just caps off the fact that like both on and off the track, is he not doing the things that are necessary to correct excel in the sport? But Stroll also got a lot of heat earlier in the weekend. I think it was from qualifying when he got out of the car, pissed off that he sucked again in qualifying and, and before going for his way in basically pushed his, his physical trainer, but this sheds a whole new light. He's like the man was short on electrolytes. I mean, he was, he was a little hostile. The physio has got to do a better job in prepping his driver for those kind of conditions. So in that case, Dude. I, I kind of, uh, I kind of believe it. So what you thought they Stroll. were just all conspiring to say it was too intense, or you just think some drivers are not preparing as well and taking as comprehensive an approach, not only to, you know, prepping in the simulator, but thinking holistically about health and hydration and what the conditions of the race are actually going to be. Uh, yeah, a lot of it probably comes down to preparation and some of it also is just like, maybe you should just have a higher pain tolerance. <laughs> like, and, and it's less about like what it did to you physically and more about how you reacted. Right. Of like, like coming off with this tone of like someone has hurt you. Like the immediate reaction of like feeling like you need to find somebody to blame. Like Stroll for me had his first, like between that and then his shove in the paddock or in the garage, he, you know, he's kind of covered it up. He's had a cover. He's kind of covered it up for most of the season, but this was his first. Like, oh, you are a spoiled rich boy. Like that. that it, I I kind of forgot that that might be who you are. But thank you for reminding me. That is one hundred percent who you are. Like in the face of any form of adversity, and that the car doesn't agree with you. Your teammate is whooping your freaking ass, and now the weather's bad, and that's just not. You just aren't gonna. Well, Stroll being Canadian, I'm not entirely surprised. It is a bit more surprising for Sargent being a Florida boy, a South Florida boy that I did think that that he got to him. I also, I guess, respect him a little bit for like pulling the plug when he needed to. Like, let's be honest, they weren't fighting for points. And the last thing the man needed to do was bend the car. So not the worst decision in the world, I guess. But I, I agree with your point overall was it does create a clear contrast relative to other drivers. All right. Well, with that being said, I think we've covered off the, the temperature pretty clearly. Um, you know, a little off track news, I guess that came out in between the numerous races since our last episode. And and I guess even before then was this conversation around, you know, American viewership dwindling for F1 as of late, you know, being listed as boring, Viewership, I guess, being quoted at what down 25% year over year. I guess, what do you make of that? Do you think it's believable? And and if you do believe it, like, do you, do you, why do you think it's declining? And do you think it's actually a problem? I guess, um, the expectation. So I think the specific observation was because ESPN re-upped their media rights for F1 after 2022, and basically went from like a couple of million dollars to like $90 million. Uh, it was like a huge multiplier in the meteorites. And then now they do some broadcasting of certain races on ABC. So it's much more mainstream than the sky extended feed. And um, uh, apparently the Miami GP was down 25% in viewership year over year, 2022, 2023. And I guess the main thesis is like the sports just gotten boring. That's kind of what people are saying on Twitter. Cause Max is just out front kind of dominating. 
I think that's part of it. But I think also part of it is just this kind of predictable leveling out, like from the immediate spike and just it blowing up in the U.S., which was like Netflix took off, the documentary reached peak interest, the Drivers' Championship was as compelling as it's ever been, and these U.S. races proliferated counters. Like the perfect trifecta, interest is going to spike. And so I think some degree of normalization was probably always inevitable. Would it have been less severe if this was, again, a really close championship fight? Probably. Um, and I think the Amer- American audiences, more than anything, because we don't have attachment to the tradition of the sport, we're, we're going to have a higher bar for, like, this has got to be hyper-competitive to keep me interested. You know? And, you know, if, if, your, if your baseline was 2021, which isn't fair in the grand, you know, trajectory of Formula One's history... You, of course you were going to be disappointed. So I don't, I guess I say all that to say, I'm not sure how they solve it, you know, like, or will it solve itself as kind of the cars develop into each other? I, I don't know. But Max is kind of part of the problem <laughs> to some degree. I mean, yeah, as is Hamilton, as are other drivers, right? I do think you get more intrigue at least when the second driver has some level of parity, right? Like at least if there was a fight out front between drivers one and two, that would be good for the sport. Honestly, the the lack of parity between Verstappen and Perez is probably the biggest problem in the sport in this context. But to your point, I totally agree. Like there is a certain saturation amount and a certain steady demand that you're going to have. And yeah, there was a intersection of multiple factors that just made for the perfect storm. I mean, great. I don't, I don't even know if you can chalk it all up to planning, right? You'd love to say, oh, we planned this out really well and, and sort of had all this come together at this pinnacle moment, but they kind of got lucky with drive to survive preceding like what a couple of seasons before 2021 and then 2021 being such a phenomenal, like you're getting the interest, people are, are checking it out. And then you have this amazing season. I mean, you're only, you're only going to decline from there. And I also think the U S market is just so incredibly difficult because there, I don't know, you, you have probably a bit of a better perspective on like European sports interest, but it just feels like there's not as much, there's way more options in terms of the U S of where like there's very equal competition among sports, whether it be football or basketball or baseball, UFC, like there just seems to be a lot of competing priority amongst just sports fans. And that's not even to count all the people who are just into F1 because of like the cultural intrigue and of the moment. Right. And so like baseball, I guess, has had a huge boost in ratings as well with the whole, you know, changes that they've made to the sport. So I think there's a couple of different factors that have made that like inevitable in which you're going to lose some of those people who are just in it because it was hot and interesting and new. And then certainly the lack of competitiveness adds to I mean, that. what other, I mean, what other sports in the U.S. are succeeding that aren't American sports that weren't invented in America. Uh, I mean, I mean, I can even tell you about the history of all these sports, right? I mean, I'm sure anybody listening will be like, well, technically this sport was invented in here. No, but I mean like where the professional league didn't originally proliferate in the United States, right? Like the NBA is an American league. The NFL is an American league. NASCAR is an American racing formula. IndyCar is an American racing, racing formula. Like, 
I mean, soccer is like the only example. That's like the unique and, one of like U.S. versus the world, really. Right, but I wouldn't say that like, I mean, the MLS is thriving on certain dimensions. It's kind of been more of a slow trickle over time. But it's not like, it's not going to be challenging the Premier League or the Bundesliga like anytime soon. Yeah. So it's like, or probably ever. So I mean, no, I, never. I guess especially like, when you I watch like Messi like, just fucking tear it up out there. It's like, dude, this is well, a fucking joke. I guess I'm saying that all that to say, as an outsider coming into the U.S. and trying to dominate your category of sports entertainment, it's kind of unprecedented in sports media in the It was US. an unfair expectation to have, right? It's kind of like investing. Yes. Like, they just thought it was going to go up forever. And, like, yeah. more and more, everybody's going to watch it. And it's like, right. one, that never going to happen, period. And the only scenario in which it would is if you had identical seasons to 2021, which is a virtual impossibility as well. So Here, here's the other thing that could play into it. The NFL is getting increasingly interested in what it would look like to put a team in London and expand into Europe in general. And if the NFL gets teams in Europe, you better believe they're going to be playing on Sunday mornings all mm. the time. Cause the Jags have just done that two weeks in a row. They're going to have uh, the Ravens and somebody else are playing next Sunday in London. And those are nine 30 games. If the NFL can start to own the Sunday morning block, because that's they want to do that, right? Sunday morning plus the 1 p.m. block plus the 4 plus the 8, and then have Monday and Thursday, like that could crowd out F1 viewership in the U.S. pretty quickly if they could figure if they could get there. They have to have a team in London that actually has a following, though. And there is a rumor that the Jags are going to move there permanently. So it's a And you're fragile, just saying what from the early morning time slot in which F1 competes in the U.S.? That's the thing is like they don't compete really against anything else other than like people going to church on Sunday mornings, which is valid. But like they don't compete with any other sports on Sunday mornings, which is when most of the races are that. Interesting. And so it's like so it's a I I view it purely from a time slot perspective as like a meaningful but somewhat fragile beachhead. And I could see the NFL trying to own that more in the future. So, yeah. Well, and. Totally valid. Agree with that. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I, I think we're missing one really critical factor here, which is the Daniel Ricardo effect. And I just like to note <laughs> that decline coincides, the growth Our and decline son. coincides with Daniel Ricardo being on the grid versus not being on the grid. So, I mean, if F1 really wants to continue its prominence in the U.S., I think we know what I think we know what they have to do. Yeah. Uh, he's coming back. I'm not worried about that at all. That's not an if for me. It's just a win. You know, we're just waiting on the next and where, uh, doctor report. And where. But we'll leave yeah, that yeah. as a bit of a teaser. Yep. I think to now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, next topic. <laughs> Segway. You, fortunately, you won't have to wait long. Um, but before we get there, I mean, we just got to talk about Verstappen, right? Wins his third championship. He has single-handedly won the Constructors Championship, and he currently has more points than the second and third place driver combined. 433 versus 418. In this race in particular, this race in particular, and I mean the race, not the sprint race because it's irrelevant, but the race itself, pole position, win, fastest lap, and at multiple points, they were noting the fact that while drivers were receiving track limit penalties and virtually everyone had exceeded track limits at some point. 
that Verstappen had not exceeded track limits one time. Now, I'm not sure if that held true through the end of the race, but the man is just striving to achieve different levels of success, and he is seeking out different benchmarks than other drivers are even really considering. Now, granted, the car, if it's better performing, you don't have to push as hard, so you don't have to exceed track limits, but it just seems like he is continuing to create new goals for himself and just absolute dominance of the sport. My question, and even in post-race, they were like, wow, you won, like what's next? And he's like, well, we got a lot more races we want to win this season. So, I mean, the bar is just always higher, right? Whatever you're at now, it's just more. The question for you is, he's also made comments about, you know, if F1 does this, I'll leave the spore or, hey, I want to do these other things. How obviously he has that like victory mindset, hyper competitive, but how long can this keep him engaged in the sport? How long can you look for those sort of marginal wins of, well, I didn't exceed track limits when everyone else did. Like, do you think that's enough to keep him engaged in the sport beyond his current contract? Or, or if this persists, do you see him bowing out? I mean, well, first off, let me just say, I have a fundamental belief about Max that it's like, what else is that dude going to do other than racing? Now, that doesn't mean he has to always race in F1, and he addressed really directly in media this week, probably for the first time, that like he absolutely wants to do Le Mans at some point. Because he was asked, I think in an interview by Tom Clarkson, about the fact that they announced they were going to uh, enter the Valkyrie into Le Mans next year, that um, Aston was going to do that. And they were like, how cool would it be if you were basically driving the Valkyrie, right, like in Le Mans? And he was like, I'm absolutely going to do Le Mans, but I want to make sure it's like the right team, the right opportunity, the right time. And like, I'm not his, I think it's exact one of it, like paraphrasing his quote, but he was like, if I'm going to do it, I want to know I can win. Basically it was like, and so it's like, he definitely, I actually think that Max is probably, because he also, if you ever watch those grill the grid videos, so I'm going to psychoanalyze Max for a second. If you watch those Grill the Grid videos, have you seen any of those where they test the drivers on like F1 knowledge? Absolutely. You saw the one where Vettel named like every world champion like in the history of F1, which was like insane back to like the 60s. But Max made it to like the early 80s. Yeah, he was like, like he second knew, best, right? Yeah, he was second. Yeah. Only Vettel beat him. And so to me, it's like, well, this guy clearly has a respect for the history of racing much more broadly than just Formula One. And so I, you know, I could see a scenario where. Maybe he gets to the end of his contract. He's won four or five world titles and the wins, like let's pretend that the 2026 engine reg change goes completely against Red Bull and they find themselves down the grid third or fourth and uncompetitive. I could see a scenario where maybe if he's won four or five world titles at that point, he might say to himself, you know what? Let me just go get into endurance racing for a while, try something else. And then hell, maybe four or five years later, he comes back to the sport. I don't know, but like, I think he's always going to be racing, but I'm not. He he also seems he's so hyper focused on winning that he might be willing to leave Formula One if he felt like he could win in other categories for a season. But to you, That's the trigger point. is he's won a lot, but then something changes and he's really no longer in a competitive position within F1. You think that might be where he backs out? Because you got to say it is it is. It's got to be hard to walk away if post 2026 they continue to be on top, and now he's at six, seven, dude, like he on the door 10. to the record. Like if they nail that yeah. leg change, 
it's it, it's got to be real hard to walk away, right? But to your yeah. point, if if that doesn't happen, he gets five and Red Bull declines, that's probably more of the scenario in which he he steps away. You I think. mean, to me, you're already in rare. You're in the rarefied air now of three, which is a list of five or less drivers. And so it's like, all right, well, there's not really point in climbing that list unless you're going to be at the top of it. So it's just like, all right, well, you either want to beat Schumacher and get to eight or like, you know, just be in the short list of five. Especially if the road is clear. But if you're looking at it, you fall right. short like like where Hamilton's position. He's like tied. He feels like he's on the cusp. Like I get for him too where he's like, oh, he, I want to do this. And he doesn't to, seem yeah. to have as much interest in other racing categories. Like this seemed like his thing crushed right. it. He wants to do that. And then he's yeah. got interests outside of the sport and it, or and outside he, of racing, he, maybe in general. The, the status of F1 is more fit for Lewis Hamilton's like personality and his general interest. But Max is like the antithesis of that. And I think would just enjoy just like other more pure quote unquote forms of racing that get less attention, but just because he loves racing. Yeah. Cause and you can see where Max hates the fits. lack of parody to some degree. Right. So he's sitting here having to challenge yeah. himself, but you can also see a world where he's like, I'd love to race in a, in a league where there's more parody and, and does endurance right. do that. And, and it's a different kind of I, challenge to me. Like he, cause he does a bunch of endurance racing on, on the sim uh, and it, with his sim team. And so to me, like endurance racing is like, it capitalizes on the tradition of racing, like real racing. Yeah. And it also is just like driver v driver. I can also like, see him doing some crazy shit where he's like the only driver to win like a 24 hour race without a teammate. You know, <laughs> he just is in the car all by himself for 24 yeah. hours. Something like, you know, yeah. he wins one. And he's like, well, what's the next thing? Right. So no, I, I totally yeah. agree. I think I, I, I agree. I think it's you ride the wave as long as you can. But if you've if you've had as much success as he has and then it sort of falls away from you. Are you really going to sit? And especially for him too, where he, I think with Lewis, like he had so much success early, both at McLaren and then Mercedes was like a pretty quick ride where Red Bull, that was a lot of seasons of like being third place and, and punching above your weight and developing the car and eventually getting there where I can see you like not wanting to do that all over again. Yeah. Yeah, I could. Yeah, I could see that. Well, let's turn our attention to a driver where at the present moment, it does not seem like those same concerns are relevant. Mr. Perez. Um, generous way of introducing that. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to be a little subtle, at least. <laughs> um, well, to be less subtle, the man finished 40 seconds behind Russell, who had to pit on lap one with damage. Um, he had multiple track limit violations, just a clear inability to move up the field, seemed timid in passing, which given his last few races seems understandable, given the fact that he tried to pass in the sprint race going three wide, DNF, he tried to pass in Singapore and Suzuka on the inside of the drivers sticking a nose in and crashed, really should have DNF'd in both of those, but caused others to DNF and somehow survived, at least in, in Singapore. Um, and somehow still sitting second place, which I would posit really only for the fact that there, this whole season has been a revolving door of second best teams and third best drivers between Aston to Mercedes to Ferrari to now McLaren. And then the likes of 
Alonzo, then switching over to Hamilton later in the season. I mean, and and similar to our earlier point of, you know, the the capstone or the low point, I guess, for some of these drivers being this weekend, I think what felt like to me the low point for Perez this weekend was twofold. Your teammate securing the driver's championship because with basically not having to do anything because you DNF'd. And two, your race engineer coming on the radio after your second track limit penalty saying, quote, you've got it in the most like dejected tone. You got another track limit penalty. This is now hurting our race. Like it doesn't get any clearer than that, that you are falling short. So with that being said, I mean, one, how brutal was that penalty call when you heard that? And there's now calls where Perez may not even finish the 2024 season. Do you, but yet he was slated or 2023 season yet was slated to drive even for 2024. You think there's any chance, where do you stand on him making it out of this season? And do you think there's any shot in hell that he drives for them for 2024? Who who are they going to put in the seat this year? This year? Yeah. If they pull him, like there's no point. It's it's completely inconsequential. It's they don't need it for the constructors. It just would no point. Is the best um, thing for point, that him that happened for him in 2023 was Ricardo breaking his wrist? Because like wasn't that potentially the move? Like at this point, if Ricardo's I mean, still been it racing, remains to be like it remains to be seen because he's coming back. Ricardo's still going to have a shot to show out. Agreed, but, but honestly, this man, season, to your point, he's not going to have enough races where they feel confident enough to replace him with pair. Like, what's the point then? But had Ricardo been driving this whole time without the injury, I mean, you are looking at a much more realistic possibility of Paris getting replaced. Sure, but I still think Red Bull has nothing to gain from that. Like, in terms of, it just comes off as overly harsh and unnecessary, given how much Max is nominated. And he's still I, sitting I, I number two in the championship right like if you can get one two why not get one two you know like i i i bet on him i'm betting on hamilton at this point like i mean he'd have a razor thin lead if hamilton hadn't hit russell so i i don't think perez is gonna hold on to it if Mm. i if i'm a betting man i really don't i mean how many races we got left like five four five yeah i mean that's plenty of a lot of time make up yeah how many points 30 points 20 20 30 yeah god dude like I think I might give the nod to Hamilton, especially now that he's motivated by the fact that he just had a bad weekend and probably is going to try and finish strong. So I like, uh, look, man, I I've, I've sold my Perez stock. It's nothing about him personally, but it's just like, he's the only theory that really makes any sense in my head is that the car has evolved away from him. And if you're Red Bull and you've seen that, you should have a stronger belief than you've ever had that the driving style and preferences of the driver who succeeds him matters more than anything. And that is why I think, regardless of how it goes at Alpha Tauri, the answer that they think, or that Horner especially thinks, is Ricardo. I know you vehemently disagree with that, but... Given the difference between pre-summer break and post-summer break, I don't know how you can like Perez didn't forget how to drive. Like I mean, the only other alternative is he's just had a total mental collapse and just total lack of confidence. But I tend to agree with you that either. It feels like he has the lack of confidence for some reason, which is 
the he's car. not as comfortable in the car, right? Like it would be yes. shocking to have that just purely mental collapse. And to your point, agreed. A seasoned driver and, like that, it, you, you know what you are, you know what you have. You're pretty secure in your position. It would be odd. Unless ma- driving against well, Max is just that demoralizing. But again, I, I think you're and, right. It, as the car has evolved, especially when you see a driver like Max, right? Like they say, oh, it's designed around Max, but you have a guy who can push a car to the limit. You're going to design the limit of that car in the direction of whoever can capitalize on it, right? Like you're not going to develop the car just because of a, some philosophy about design Dude. when the driver who's excelling can take it this way and do better with it. And 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 why, if you're Red Bull in 2024, why not test that theory? If you don't have a clause that allows you to break Perez's contract in 2024, you're going to have to pay him anyway. And if you want to put Ricardo in there, you're not going to have to pay him dick. So like, it's a very cheap experiment. So you like, you might as well. And if it doesn't work out, he's not going to have been any worse for you than Perez would have been probably over the full course of a season. And and then you're going to have the driver market completely open up after 2024, and you're going to have all the options you'd have had anyway. So why yeah. not try? Like, they have nothing to lose. Inversely, the best thing Ricardo has going for him is the fact that Perez looks so terrible because you're right. Like, it, can it get any worse? It would be hard. Like even at least Ricardo was finishing races at McLaren. Sure. He was bottom 15, but he was bringing it across the finish line. And look, there were extenuating circumstances for why this occurred, but McLaren finished inside the Red Bull pit window for one of the first times this season, both drivers. And so if Red Bull's looking at that and they're like, well, if McLaren's going to creep their way up the board, then like maybe next year I am going to need a freaking second driver. And like, I can't, you know, if I have a fundamental belief that that's probably not Checo, which I think at this point it's hard to really, you know, believe that it would be, you got to you got to try something else. And I just who's a better alternative unless you're going to go grab Lando Norris, which I don't think is realistic till 2025 anyway, in the big sh- driver market shuffle. He's got too many years left on. His but yeah, you're, t- you're right. After 2024, it's wide open and then totally then agree go with get you. It. The resurgence of McLaren, as I said earlier, like that revolving door of second best teams is why this gap is so wide, right? We talked about preseason position. Was the gap going to be wider than it was before? I totally blew that saying it wasn't because you had just such a a turnover of who that second team is. And we don't know whether McLaren's going to hold that position or not, but they're making a strong case for it as of now of clearly moving up the field and being a clear number two. So yeah, that would put a lot of pressure. I mean, there's no way the gap would be as wide as it is now if the next season starts off like it is now. Totally. No, it definitely wouldn't be. Um, so with that being said yeah. then, okay, so 2023, we think Perez finishes the season. 2024, it sounds like you're all in on the Ricardo camp of basically no matter what happens from here on out, Ricardo's in the car for 2024. It doesn't have to be Ricardo. I think I'm just generally saying roll the dice with someone. And if I, if it's so not Ricardo, do you Ricardo, think it's Ricardo is the question? Or do you, do well, you put Sonoda or Lawson above in that seat right now? Lawson's too much of a dice roll. Sonoda, I think, is... How is Lawson a dice roll at this point? Lawson's outscored Sonoda, what, three of his four races? Yeah, but that's 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 That would be the second quickest promotion to the front team, apart from Max, for a guy that they weren't even planning to give an Alpha Tower seat to this year. Like... 
And so, yeah, I, I hear you that like he's outperforming Sonoda, and I agree he's doing admirably well, but I don't think that buys you a seat on the Red Bull front team in a car that's that dominant currently. I don't think they want to. So, take what that have you risk. seen from Ricardo that says, all right, so you, you would agree nothing. that so far Lawson nothing looks better. So far, Lawson honestly looks better than Sonoda. Less risk prone. He's finished more races, been yeah. in the points. But still a but, small so, sample size. Like we just got it. It's a very still, yeah. But that car's still at the back of the grid. I mean, that there really hasn't totally. shown a lot of improvement that there's been these great strides and upgrades you, that while well, go, wow, Lawson's just benefiting from car improvement, really. You're you're ba- you're you're basing it, you're making a bet based on Ricardo's experience, test data, and beliefs about his driving style. And I realize that's like a pretty holy argument. But like and, and Again, the man who in one of his three races crashed and crashed and broke his wrist. Yeah, well, okay, because there was a car in the middle of the track. I mean, it is racing. There tends to be cars in the middle of the track a you, lot of times. You, you have made such a thing of that damn crash, and I think it's just completely pointless. Like, what would you have done if you had come Which around Which other driver has... I would have crashed into his ass. I'd have gone straight Dude, head on. That is... You don't actually believe that. You don't. And then what would you have at least taken my? I would have at least gone as far as I could, and then taken my hands off the wheel at a certain point. He would have gone. He would have t-boned the monocoque structure of of Piastri. Look, I would have tried to avoid the man, but when it became clear I was running into the wall, I'm going to remove my hands from the wheel, dude. No one listening to this believes you have any credibility saying what you should or shouldn't do behind the wheel of an F1 car. I have nearly, trust me, Graham. I have nearly crashed into (laughs) a lot of people, and it's never happened. Virtual walls. (laughs) A lot of virtual walls on Gran Turismo. Get the fuck out of here with your, he should have done this behind the wheel take. That is completely baseless and you know it. So wait, how many other drivers have been injured behind the wheel this season? And, and it only how many? Lance Stroll. And how, yeah. But he wasn't really injured behind well the wheel. That. He was dirt well, biking. that's true. Okay, so Ricardo's the only one and he has only, what, three races this season? So. I mean, I mean, technically Ricardo's injuries were worse than uh, Grosjean's and he exploded. So, you know, uh, Look, it's a freak thing, dude. I can't. You you can hold many things over Ricardo's head, including an entire two years of performance history at McLaren, but the injury should not be one of them. So, like, you can just get the fuck out with that. The best ability <laughs> is availability, okay. and my man Lawson is showing up, not puking in his helmet. <laughs> he's he's <laughs> punching that time card, baby. Punching that clock. <laughs> The man is in nine to five. <laughs> Dude, have you seen that um, that uh, Logan Sargent tracker Twitter account that it posts updates about like, you know, Sargent's weekend and it'll show like, you know, qualified P18 DNF and then it'll have a silhouette of him and then behind it like a bald eagles like flying and it's playing the team America like America. Huh? Fuck yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh, man. It's become one of my favorite F1 accounts. Did you just come uh, out of nowhere with a dig at Sergeant just to detr- like distract from our me ripping on Ricardo? Just to be clear, I just again you have like I, I think you agree with me in the sense that, and then we can move off this. But Red Bull, it, they don't have anything to lose by rolling the dice on a second driver next year. That's not Perez. I, there are fine arguments out there for who else other than Ricardo, but I just, I don't think any of them are substantially stronger than the Ricardo. I guess for me, it is just a young man's game. You're seeing the likes of Piastri come in and do a phenomenal job. And Lawson in the last car on the grid 
has done a really good what job. A, what do you mean a young man's game when you got Alonzo and Hamilton near the top of the order every freaking weekend? You're just poaching names to serve your argument. That doesn't hold any freaking water, Gerald. <laughs> Hulkenberg guess, is like 35. Like, okay, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to Hulkenberg. Blowing Magnuson's the, doors off. Hulkenberg's not the best reference point, but fair points. It, it's that, not exclusively no, a young man's game. But I guess my point was, at this point for Red Bull, if I'm going to take a risk on somebody, I want to take a risk on somebody where I feel like there's a higher upside potential. And Lawson has not really made me think there's a massive downside risk based on the limited sample size that he's shown so far. But again, we haven't seen this mythical mythical simulator times that Ricardo's put up in that one fucking tire test. I mean, goddamn, that must have been a good test. <laughs> this fucking dude still has a chance and he's sitting on the sideline. So fucking A. All right, have we beat this topic to death? <laughs> I think we <laughs> Time will tell. Yeah, yeah. I got Popeyes coming in seven minutes, so I am going to have to run downstairs. Damn, bro, you are Popeyes every time we record. I mean, I guess no Uh, no time for a homemade meal on these evenings, huh? No, no, zero. All right, where are we going next? Mercedes. All right, real hot topic for this weekend since Perez is a bit of an old hat at the moment. Um, Wow, as I said before, missed out on potentially a massive weekend to put the nail in Ferrari's coffin and secure second place in the constructors championship and put Hamilton in a position to close the door on, on Perez. And I mean, given Perez's performance, almost make it a foregone conclusion that Hamilton again, you know, or Hamilton secures second in the driver's championship as well. Um, But just for that context, Mercedes now just 28 points ahead of Ferrari. I mean, as you look back to, I mean, at this weekend was particularly important for them because there was they were sort of, I wouldn't even say that they were exchanging blows. Like Ferrari was closing the gap, right? I mean, Signs in Singapore had a, a pole position, a first place finish. Leclerc finished high in the order. And then in, in Suzuka, Ferrari outperformed them again. And so... Both of the drivers out qualifying Ferrari, signs sitting on the sidelines. This was really their chance to to bring it home. Um, and unfortunately, you know, Russell out qualified Hamilton, started second, Hamilton started third, but Hamilton started on soft tires. Going into turn one, Hamilton got a great start. So did Russell, though, coming up really a, almost able to pass for stopping. They really went three wide into the corner. Hamilton braked late from behind Russell, let's be fair, and then cut off the corner short enough that him and Russell made contact and race over for Hamilton and set up Russell for a long day climbing back through the field, but really ultimately finished reasonably well on the weekend. Obviously both drivers sort of blaming each other uh, over the radio initially, but Hamilton after the fact taking full responsibility and completely agree that he cut the corner too closely to try to go around the outside. But that being said, do you think Russell or the team have some fault in the incident in terms of their strategy, setting expectations for how the start was going to go? What did you make of the incident? No, no, none. What, what, what liability could either of them have to bear? Okay. I'm not going to be overly punitive to Hamilton about this because it was clearly his fault, but it wasn't egregious. Okay. Like it's a competitive racing move. It wasn't like the dumbest thing I've seen anybody do on track. 
It's not something he's prone to often, but like, yeah, it was consequential. Hell, had they gotten an even better jump on Max and he been a little bit further back in the turn, they'd probably have taken him out too, which would have been really crazy. But then, like, then a McLaren would have actually won their first race, then, right? Which would have been nuts. But putting that aside, um, I don't see what Russell. I mean, he was like immediately remorseful coming back on the radio and like you could tell he was going through this like self-examination process of like, oh, did I really just do that? Was I responsible for that? I'm so sorry, guys. And then Toto eventually comes on. He's like, you just got to go race. Like, just put it behind you kind of thing. Like, I I don't know what the team – I actually don't even know if Hamilton called his own shot on the softs or the team put him on him. But even if the team put him on him, dude, like – you, you can't make decisions about the tire come bound at race start because you're super afraid one guy's going to get alongside the other and then hit in turn one. That's just like way too paranoid to plan around. Nine, 99% of the time, those guys are going to get through turn one cleanly, and this is just the one time they didn't, and it's just part of racing. And I actually commend Mercedes for having a driver dynamic that can overcome that within the same evening and like literally hug it out. I actually thought it was kind of impressive. Fucking Russell Homer. Um, God, that's not a. That's not. I'm not. That's not a Russell take. That's just irrational. That's rational. It's like. So here's my here's what, my view. What could you start? Yeah, t- you start me- a driver that starts in third behind Russell, right? Mediums on second place, softs on third. What do you expect to happen? Why are you putting him on softs to begin with? Now I don't Why even. George I don't. Fault? But I don't agree that. I think if anything, they should have put. Russell on softs and Hamilton on mediums. I think Russell has a strong opinion when it comes to his race strategy. So I would be shocked if he didn't have a voice in starting mediums and likewise for Hamilton. But in that condition, why are you starting a driver on softs? You are starting them on softs specifically for the purpose of having them make up positions on the start. Well, which position is he going to make up? There's only two Russell and Verstappen. Now, I don't and necessarily. So, now agree. look, you're saying you can't plan for everything, but you put him on an like obvious strategy to make up positions at the start. And then let's say in the probabilistic condition that Hamilton gets a better start, could one not say, in that case, George, you should probably concede and allow Hamilton to have a shot at taking Verstappen because that might actually give you a chance to stay close and have a shot at the win if you really think that medium strategy is going to work out. So it just seems like it's not a lot of hard thinking that has to be done to see that that was a possible scenario to come up. And if they're not considering that as a scenario, they're not considering any scenarios. And so and so to me, and, and last thing I'll say is, so there's the, the single race scenario. The other factors are Hamilton's third in the constructor in the driver's championship, rapidly closing on Perez. Russell, you're eighth. You're eighth in the driver's championship. And in all practical reality, you don't really matter. Third factor is our team's trying to secure second in the constructor's championship. We need to have both cars finish. Now, look, I know it's not in a driver's instinct to concede at any point in time ever. But if you're going to play the long game, both from a individual driver standpoint because Russell got hurt as well in this whole situation. He'd be past Norris. He'd be past signs right now had he not had that situation. And so it was short-sighted for him. It was bad strategy and alignment by the team early. 
So yes, I do think both him and the team have some fault in this. Why in your heart of hearts do you feel the need to blame somebody? Why? Why is why? that necessary here? Because accountability, we talk about accountability, <laughs> Graham. I don't see it as blame. I see it as accountability and lessons learned that can be extrapolated Dude, into future will, race scenarios. I will hear an argument for the team should not have set up the trailing car on softs purely because of the risk for race start. I don't really totally buy that, but like, okay. But there could be strategic advantages. I don't know what they were thinking beyond that, but you could see, well, this, but like, shouldn't point, you think about the second order consequences of doing that, which is obviously, well, Russell might be passing or Hamilton might be passing Russell going into turn one. Then what would we maybe, do? I don't know. Maybe I, I don't know where they were with their tire allocation and what was left after practice in the sprint. I don't know. Is what that what you were Googling real quick? Were you trying I, to see if Hamilton had the tires? Well, I was just trying to see if Hamilton made the call on the softs or if the team mm -hmm. did, if that had been published at all. I have no idea. Yeah. But, like, like I wouldn't be surprised if Hamilton actually had called his own shot on that one. Like, Max dictates his starting tire strategy all the time. So, it's like, I don't know. But I, to, to say that Russell had some obligation to back out, I think that is absolutely ridiculous. Like, he he was enti he got he was entitled to the to the position that he had in the turn. He was ahead of Lewis going into the braking zone. He was ahead of Lewis at the end of the braking zone for the most part, or at least side by side at worst. And he was entitled to his racing line, and he also did not go wide. I he and, and if he had gone any further in, he's going to hit Max. So like I don't know what expectation you could possibly place on him to do anything differently there. Look, Russell did not have an obligation to give Hamilton the position. But I guess I'm just surprised that he and the team did not have that as a realistic possibility, dare I say, expectation of what was to happen at the race start. And then being surprised that Max got such a bad start saying, fuck, I know Hamilton's coming up. Our strategy was to have him sort of attack Verstappen and Verstappen got a bad start. Let me tuck in here behind Verstappen and put pressure on him that way. I think that would have been the most constructive sort of team focused strategy. But in the moment, the driver's going to maximize their own benefit. But I, but look, I just think it's a different of, he could have had a bit of a longer term perspective and it would have served him and the team and Hamilton all better. I can't blame a guy for fighting for a position over a teammate that he outqualified the day before. So is the team at fault full, for putting full stop. Hamilton on? on? No. But Mercedes but does not have... But unlike Ferrari, which I think we've realized has a very strong qualifying as king culture, it doesn't seem like Mercedes has that quite as much. So I can't we're, say why they put... We're splitting hairs here. Yeah. I, look, if I had to assign a percentage blame, it is 95% Hamilton, maybe 5% the team, zero Russell. But again, I don't think anyone deserves to have their hand chopped off as a result of their sins on this one. Like, Agreed. It, I just think it's thing, an interesting lesson. Kind of and you wanted to psychoanalyze Max. I think it's an interesting psychoanalysis of Russell. And God, that is something harsh. he can reflect uh, on and think about. Because I don't know why this man thinks he's a number one driver. He's hardly he, in the top ten in driver bro, standings. He, he's eighth, bro. He's eighth. He's not... He's not had a good year on race day for a lot of different reasons, and I'm not. And some of those I'm, are I'm, him, which means he's I'm not a not, number one driver. And when your number one I'm driver not, is on softs, you can I'm see. I'm not 
making the argument that he's a number one driver, but your assertion that a driver should recognize that they are exactly not number one and be deferential to their teammates. He needs to recognize that Hamilton. He needs to recognize that <laughs> Hamilton is his daddy weekend Dude. and week out. Did you not? Gerald, did you not hear him come on the radio and be like, oh my gosh, did I do that? Like, it, it sounded like he had accidentally murdered somebody and that's just realized he knows, what he had That's because he knows he ruined daddy's race. And daddy's going to well, be mad. He, dude, he clearly knows the hierarchy because he was so concerned on the radio. So it's like, dude, he gets it. He's All right. not I, he, wasn't, he wasn't waxing the whole time. There was plenty of moments God. where Russell was clearly frustrated at Hamilton as well. I, I, this is you just got me all hot. Move on to the next topic. I'm gonna take another bite of my Popeye sandwich and calm down. Well, I, I had this question queued up, but I think there might actually be a, another another bigger fan of Russell. But my question is going to be, you know, in the sprint race, he makes a great pass, right? He's coming through the field, makes a great pass in the sprint race, and then over the radio, he basically says like, "Awesome move," and like pats himself on the back. And I can't remember whether it was Palmer or Coulthard. Basically, they responded, well, why wait for somebody else to congratulate you? So my question to you is, is there any bigger fan of George Russell than George Russell? And I think we've already answered our own my own question. You making this George Russell's acquire more argument is like you sitting there and yelling at me that two plus two equals four. And I'm like, yeah, man, I know. It's obvious to you. It's obvious to me. It's literally obvious to everyone that watched the race on Sunday. And I'm here to tell you, we don't care. There are bigger pricks in this sport, and he is the least of my problems. I don't care. I, I really don't. Like, he's a little bit of a nerd. He's definitely a prick. He's pretty self-absorbed. He's not a bad guy. Like, he's hardly the worst of my problems, Gerald. I got way more hatred in my heart for Lance Stroll than I'd like to talk about. And those reasons are way more validated. All I'm saying is there's enough hate to go around. We don't have no, to. there's not, and you're you you need somebody to blame. You know, you just need somebody to blame, and I'm here to tell you, I don't live in a world where there always has to be somebody to blame. Sometimes, dude, shit just happens, and it's not really anybody's fault, and it's regrettable, and you just got to move on. What a fucking Taoist pacifist way to look at the world. That is oh, n- no, it's disgusting. realism, is what it is. <laughs> Freaking emotionally charged rebel rouser. Over here. <laughs> oh, that was a, that was a fun one. Um, hey, we can't agree on everything, for God's sakes. Um, all right, well, <laughs> one thing we do agree on: Ferrari. <laughs> uh, suffice it to say, Ferrari they were on a solid run as of late, but unfortunately, uh, signs not in the race. What was it? A fuel leak, oil leak in the engine, so he did not start this weekend which put them out quite a bit on the back foot. All their hopes rested in Leclerc. But again, bit of saving grace with Mercedes and Hamilton uh, dropping out of the race early. Um, I mean, I really didn't have anything to cover for them within Qatar other than I thought the one interesting thing in the last couple of weeks was the, the Singapore strategy decision, right? Sacrificing Leclerc in order to have signs win the race. Um, and I was just curious to get your thoughts on that because we've talked a couple of times about, look, signs out, he was on pole. They seem to have a very strong bias towards whoever qualifies in front is the lead driver for that weekend. And I guess I was happy to see them follow through with that. And I also think it was especially, um, a good call because while they're fighting for constructors, it didn't really hurt that battle and nobody else has won a race. And so if they could 
sit on the top step of the podium when nobody else has. And this being Singapore, which was pretty universally known as like the only track that Red Bull might struggle. They were hyper-focused on capitalizing on that in the most clear way. So I thought it was again, a, a, an actually a good strategy call by them despite pissing off Leclerc. Agree or disagree? Yeah. Uh, no, I agree. Um, when, when Ferrari says, you know, of all the teams, when they say we don't have a, a, a first driver, I actually believe them. Like they, they can screw up strategy t- six ways to Sunday, but like, you know, about how to get you to the finish line the fastest. But I actually believe that they have a pretty democratic view of their drivers in terms of who they set up for success and why, um, that they apply relatively consistently. So I, I, you know, Hey, credit where it's due. Um, and overall successful weekend for them and that we're not talking about them, which usually when we talk about them, you know, it's for bad reasons. So. Well, it's safe to say they, they, I mean, we were skeptical start of season, but it, it does really seem like Fred's been able to at least make some changes on that front. And their, their strategy has not been a call for ridicule much, if at all this season. So, I mean, well, surprise, surprise, but say- credit, credit to them. I wouldn't say not at all, but it, I mean, compared tre- to last year or in prior years, it has years, been trending I mean, positively since after the summer break. Correct. Yes, yes, fair yeah. enough. Um, well, with that, then let's move to Aston Martin. A bit more to talk about with them. I mean, they have just absolutely disappeared in the second half of this season, and while Alonso still continues to limp to you know at least a few points every race, I mean, poor Stroll, he cannot even get out of Q one. Um, and now Aston Martin, just 11 points ahead of McLaren. Um, I mean, is it pretty much a foregone conclusion that they, they finish fifth this, this season now? Oh, dude, they're, they're going to be overtaken next week. (laughs) They're not holding on to fourth for longer than the next five days. Uh, for sure. Foregone conclusion. No chance that they hold on to it. I mean, (laughs) can Alpine catch him? (laughs) Probably not, but they're definitely long. not actually <laughs> <No>. <laughs> definitely not <laughs> it's a nice thought yeah. but no look i mean they're the highlights of their weekend were alonzo asking for water to be poured down his back during a pit stop and stroll saying he was blacking out during the race and shoving his physio so we ain't talking about the right things uh <laughs> nah, that's not the headlines headlines you want well with that being said there were some other headlines now unverified possibly total rumor but there was a few interesting articles discussing the possibility that Lance Stroll's decline in form and his declining engagement in the sport, his uh, eroding attitude towards his physio and other members of the team might all be driven by the fact that Mr. Lawrence Stroll might be considering selling his stake in the team to some third party buyer and the wise businessman and strategist that you are. I was just curious to get your take. You know, we've talked a little bit around a lot of topics around the growth of the sport, introduction of new teams, now the decline of the sport. If you were Lawrence Stroll, how would you be looking at the current state of the sport and the Aston Martin team in terms of its relative valuation now versus sometime in the future. And would you say, is this a good time to sell or not? It's a really good question. Um, here's the thing. 
first off, just let me say, we can analyze in exhaustive detail the investment merits of like, is this the right time on a bunch of different dimensions? And I'm happy to do that. But we know at the end of the day that the decision whether or not to sell these types of teams is ultimately just going to come down to how did one billionaire feel when he woke up in the morning? So like, let's just acknowledge the fact that like big money and big decisions move around in the world on whims much more than they do data in ways that we probably don't even appreciate. Um, so let me just put that out there, which makes me fundamentally believe that the timing of this is just not predictable as a general rule. If I'm looking at it purely from an objective and rational lens, I think you can make the case that it is a great time to sell. So if you're looking to the things that drive the valuation of the team in general, you've got some comps out there, right? You've got the external investing in Alpine where they post money valued close to a billion. You know, you've got the general rise in global viewership. He's now had the Aston Martin name kind of sinking in, adding its brand value for a couple of years. And he's turned conceptual investments into real dollar investments in the form of the assets in the factory, the hiring that he's done. And he's actually like locked in some real like book value to the enterprise in a way that would look really good if you were trying to turn around and sell it. Um, so yeah, I think you could make the argument that like if he's sold today versus three years from now, you know, he'd probably still get 80 to 90% of his total potential return, you know, in, in the first three years rather than waiting on the last two, you know what I mean? So he, he could be 80% up the growth curve already. I think there's a case for that. Um, but at the end of the day, because this is an imperfect world and rich people make decisions based on irrational factors that aren't objective, he probably is going to make this decision more based on his son than anything else, which is <laughs> crazy. But here we are. So so goes the world, you know? Wasn't that long ago people inherited thrones and controlled armies simply because of who their daddy was. So, you know... This is how the world works. Well, and I guess, I mean, I agree with all that. I guess I would take a little bit less skeptical view of Lauren Stroll, right? Because by trade, he's a person who has bought, invested in, transformed, and then sold multiple companies, right? So that, and I think I almost actually admire him for the fact that he can get two birds with one stone. And the fact that, can I invest in this badass sport, have an awesome time, give my son this amazing opportunity and turn a fat profit. Like, man, talk about checking all of the boxes with this investment. But so credit to him. Now, could he stay in it purely for his son's enjoyment? Sure. But sure doesn't look like his son is enjoying it very much at the moment, in which case that sort of part of the investment thesis falls away. And I would agree with you. I think if you were to look at things like hitting saturation in the U.S. market, the dilution of new teams joining, you could very well say they're either at a peak or as you said, near it. And so, you know, is 80% of that potential return worth it? Yeah, probably. How long are you going to sit around for the rest of it and actually potentially put it at risk in subsequent years if the sport, you know, regresses for whatever reasons, like you said, maybe the pressure from the football market pushes further decline in the US or God knows what else happens. But, you know, I, I think you're right. I, I wouldn't be shocked if, if after this season or next season, you know, they're they're out. Well, and here's the other piece of news that happened since our last podcast that we can tie in here is the whole Andretti got FIA approval to, to be considered for being the 11th team on the grid. But now the commercial terms have to be established, which I think are more than likely to fail. 
unfortunately. But the whole notion of that is, well, he may also be able to capitalize on a moment where he's got a longer list of more desperate potential American buyers than he will at some point in the future if another American team makes it on the grid. Because we all know Haas is not an American Or any buyers, team. right? So, I mean, at this point, any, any buyers, but the, like if that door gets closed, to, yeah, if that yes. avenue of entrance into the sport is closed, acquisition of an existing team becomes the, the really only avenue. And so right. and, I mean, that drives up that could, sale valuation. And who could realistically be tendered now that Alpha's out? You know, maybe if Renault gets fed up with Alpine, you know, but that that's, you still have the Williams that would team, be un- but that valuation yeah, of Aston looking like true. they were on the verge. I mean, that's why this whole like his son, I would just be curious if you were to compare the valuations of, and maybe it's nothing because it doesn't really make that much difference, but Aston Martin finishing second and third in constructors versus finishing fifth in constructors. How much, how much did Lance cost him on, on that by not scoring hardly any points, right? My gut is he's going to let it, he's going to run it out for another year or two, you know, and let the hiring he's had sink in a little bit further. But at the end of the day, if his son gets fed up, he's, I, you know, I've heard some theory that they could demote Lance to like another racing formula to support Aston Martin and then bring somebody else in and maybe make it look amenable and Lance, you know, Lawrence could still be involved in F1. Dude, yeah, he's a shrewd businessman and I appreciate what you said about like, you know, he's found a way to kill two birds with one stone, but also he's not here if it's not for his son. He's doing what he's doing currently, turning a massive return on acquiring an enterprise and flipping it in another industry. I would agree. It's not racing. I would agree. I don't necessarily see him replacing Lance just to maximize the valuation. I think he sacrifices that value and just takes it wherever it's at with stroll in the car. But, but if you were a private equity firm would now be a decent time to potentially think about, we got to drop stroll and we got to get a contender in here. If Williams had just had the season that, Aston had had, or at least if we get like they'd be selling Williams, like Doris don't be selling them. You'd be selling, but like, I also think you'd be pushing out Stroll. I mean, you would have probably yeah. already done that anyway, For but certainly her. after this season, he, I'm just that would have been the axe. But yes, I'm just putting overall. It's just like if, you, if, if you were an owner that had a pure financial motive, which is basically Doralton capital, right? Yeah, like your potential valuation or like capital would have just gone from like your 30% return to your 80, and you'd said, Well, shit, we weren't expecting that in one year, like. Correct. And then you're like looking at the macro, you're like, okay, so like, well, what if the macro economic environment turns a year from now, two years from now, like let's catch our window, you know, while the market's still liquid and there's a bunch of buyers. Like, I mean, Jesus, like you want to talk about like cyclical industries. I mean, I can't imagine the second market for buying racing teams does particularly well during recessions. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that is not a liquid asset. So uh, that's also a consideration. Yeah. Not a very defensive investment, I'm sure. <laughs> no. No. Well, time will. But but I, I also think you're right. There, there's probably a slew of sort of macroeconomic factors he's considering. And then, yes, the the overall like investment in all the facilities and wanting to see all that come online after this year. I'm sure you also have some aspiration of being able to replicate that next season, potentially. Right. We don't it has. They haven't really made a lot of news for bringing a lot of upgrades through the second half of the season. So I, I wonder if they've said, damn, we made a big step up here. It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if we get some extra wind tunnel time and let's look ahead to, to 2024 because we've probably already outperformed that, expectations in a lot of ways. And so if you can stack that up another year or two, to your point, 
do you do you truly max out where you're at? And I think you also give times to have all that new team, Andretti, what else, drama play out. And I would have to guess he he's probably a lead lobbyist in terms of rejecting that rejecting that play no. and keeping it a pretty closed door. As would I'm I don't I still don't know why all of the teams wouldn't want that. It seems like it's pretty universal in terms of not wanting other teams on the Renault's, grid. I mean Renault's the only one because they engine, be supplier. engine supplier. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I agree. Yeah. Interesting. Well, all right, what else? Time we will got? tell. I think last to uh last to close it out, I mean so Norris, you talked about good driver pairings on the grid and driver dynamics. I think Norris and Piastri have a great one. I do think Norris so good. might start to get frustrated with like kinds of questions of like, oh, well, Piastri won his first race. Where's when's yours coming? And and I sense some frustration in terms of team order. So that could start to great. And I think at this point they're still on that. Hey, our team just needs to succeed and we're hunting down Aston Martin. So let's, let's do that. Um, but similar to Mercedes, if they start to have a truly competitive car, like start of season, how, how does that driver dynamic play out? And does, does Norris start to feel under pressure from Piastri? Cause now that Piastri's gotten the upgrades, they're pretty much on even footing. I think you could potentially chalk up a lot of Piastri's deficit to one being a rookie and two lagging in upgrades. So I don't know. Do you see any, do you see Norris's star uh, potentially waning at all? No, two things can be true at the same time. I can be absolutely impressed and blown away by Piastri's performance to give him all the credit in the world, but also believe that Lando is still that dude and like his star is not going anywhere. Look I think no he also has a good head last... on his shoulder too, where he's like, yeah, he isn't as he's not a douche. Yeah. yeah, he's not George Russell. I'll give you that. I he look. I look no further than the last end of that race when it took team orders to prevent Lando from probably overtaking Oscar. It, like. He, he, his, the race pace to qualifying pace dynamic is a bit of a synonym to the Mercedes drivers right now. You know, Piastri may pip him in a specific type of qualifying performance on a specific type of track, and he's outrageously talented and very fast well, in the Norris races. violated track limits a bunch of times. He knew, he yeah, admitted he's not he perfect, up. But yeah. He does seem to still have that edge on just digging deep and finding that kind of last gear and being able to tweak the last bit out of the car on race pace. And you could argue that Piastri will develop that over time, and I'm not saying he can't. Sure. But Norris is the, Norris is that dude, Yeah, he's man. phenomenal like, He's really. And he, there's nothing that he's done this year that you would look at and be like, he's not who we thought he was. He is still absolutely who we thought he was. So, yeah. And in the right car, will absolutely win a world championship. Yeah, totally. I, I, and I, I, would, I think that he has a way better shot of doing that than George Russell. Ooh, if I'm putting those guys next to each other over a race to over a, a season distance and the only determining factor to differentiate between two is their ability to consistently deliver in races mistake free week to week, I'm going to give it to Norris. And that's if the that's going to be the difference free. And that's how Hamilton has got. That's how that's how it happens, man. Qualifying. Well, that's why Hamilton's wins. beating Russell this year, even despite uh, qual- struggling in qualifying at various points. Qualifying performances get eyeballs consistency gets trophies like that is just how it well, works look, you can't deny qualifying sets you up for success but you can still you can but still squander that exactly correct yeah 100 yeah, percent. so i think lando excels in the things that matter for winning championships more than leclerc or russell not to mention that he's also all- generally a very good qualifier also so it, yeah it's not a weakness by any stretch yeah. so um but no i mean i agree i think that 
strength of driver pairings, I think that if you had to force rank the teams right now, I think Mercedes is one, McLaren is two, Ferrari is three, and Red Bull is four. Yep. And that is not the order we had at the beginning of the year. Nope. I would have said Mercedes, Red Bull, Ferrari, McLaren. So, I mean, what a what a flip. I mean, and it's all on the shoulders of Piastri, who, hey, man, like, you got to give Zach Brown some credit. He he knew it, and he weaseled that guy out of the Alpine program and, like, damn, Well, the credit to Piastri for having the faith in himself and delivering. Yeah. And, and I will say, t- speaking about Piastri, I, admittedly, I felt like, he he had, I mean, all that kind of puts a bit of a bad taste in your mouth, right? Big ego. He seemed kind of prickly a lot early in the season. And being a Max fan, I don't know why I found that a bit off-putting at all because I'm fully supportive of that with Max. Um, but I got to say, he is absolutely growing on me for like these sort of dry barbs yeah. that he puts out there. Like, so after the, what was it? After qualifying, they think, oh, you're starting in third. Like, great job. And then Naomi has to basically tell him mid-interview or asked him mid-interview, like, oh, did you know that you got, like, a uh, your lap time deleted so you're not third? And he's like, no, like, I'm sitting here talking <laughs> to you. <laughs> like, And so he was just like, well, that sucks. And then in the race, though, I can't remember exactly what the wording was, but he was getting interviewed. And it, it, something about a number came up. It was like, oh, this was your first or, or something or whatever. And he's like, oh. I thought you were going to tell me I had another five second penalty. <laughs> yeah. Also, like, when he, yeah. And then in the cool down room, yes, his whole like, line, going. he watches the Russell Hamilton contact. And what was it? <laughs> what did he say? He's like, oh, not so good he today. Said, yeah. No, he said, he said, like, thanks, Mercedes. Worked out perfectly for oh, me. Yeah. was basically <laughs> what he's like. He's like, yeah, it was perfect. He was like, they just cleared each other out and then I was in second and I didn't have to do anything for it. Yeah. Was basically what he said as he was lying on the ground. I was like, that's awesome. Yeah. Like, so I'm, he's I'm not, to it. your point, he's not, be, he's not being a dick, but he's just like being honest and kind of just like funny. And, but he's, yeah, I hit personality wise. He'll start to open up a little bit as he gets in front of the cameras more and yeah. he succeeds more. I'm, I'm fully on the piastro train. Seeing like that right. personality he's, emerge just makes me wish all that much more like, he was on Red Bull. And so like alongside Max, because it just feels like maybe it's too much of that same vibe, but it's the same vibe of just like blunt telling you how it is. And he's not as a great, he's, he's way more evenly temperamented than Max. Like that's not really comparable. Yes. Uh, but, but still, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, mean, I just, I appreciate that he goes about his business. He doesn't talk a ton of shit, but he has a sense of humor and he just delivers, man. Like he's just, well, and I also thought he was totally right, right? Because he was faced away from the screen and then he turned around to look at the screen in the cool down room and then they shut it off to like the logo. And he was like, and he's like, dude, I just turned yeah. around. But I thought the back and forth and like kind of talking shit about Mercedes and like reviewing uh, all awesome. of the incidents and then being very candid about it was like one of the best cool best. down rooms in a long time. And like that should what it be is like a five minute, like top three and review, like in the moment of like, whoa, fuck I'm- that happened. Like, they had it and then and they I, squandered it and like halfway and through. I'm going to go back to the heat issue. Adversity breeds candor. And I want more <laughs> candor in post-race tubers. You know, that, you know that internet show Hot Ones where they interview celebrities yes, and force yes. them to eat out? It's the same concept, yes. man. People are more vulnerable and more of them natural selves when they're forced to struggle yeah, they had something. Their so filters you know got Fuck sweat it. out of them. Fuck it. Let's let's put space heaters in the cars in Canada and just sweat them out. You know, I'd and, say and fuck a cool down the- room. We need a sauna, like a <laughs> yeah. post race sauna. Yeah. 
Yeah, 100%. I, I'm fully on board with making guys exhausted and exasperated so we can see their true colors. I'm here for that. I don't need these pampered air conditioning cars showing up. You know, you got a you got a freaking Evian in your hand, you know, with putting your Rolex on. No, I want to see a guy rip his race suit off, struggling for air, crawling across the cool-down room on the ground. Like, that's that's a version of the sport that I love. Here, here. We'll submit our proposal yep. on uh, on tomorrow. <laughs> All right. Muhammad, check your, in, check your inbox. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well, with that, that feels like a great spot to finish. I think we covered all the teams that matter at this point. What say you? Uh, I think that's a great man. We don't want to overstay uh, uh, our welcome after, after so long I've, away. I've enjoyed this, and I uh, appreciate you letting me shovel a Popeye's chicken sandwich in my mouth on intermittently uh, for the last half hour. So Anytime. And sure. Sh- strategically lengthening your questions when you can see I took a full bite. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not just rambling over here for no reason, people. I I know I like to hear my own voice, but sometimes there's a method to the madness. Uh, That makes two of us. Well, some more madness post Austin then a couple of weeks. Yeah. I don't know that I have a whole lot to say about the rest of the calendar, to be honest with you, other than Vegas will be insane. Uh, cause yeah. Uh, well, it's and interesting talking it's- about Vegas because given the heat conversation, there's all this dialogue of, well, it's just going to be the same thing in Vegas. And people fail to realize the 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 actual like conditions in a desert race. I think they're going to have almost a worse problem than what they had in, in Qatar, which is it's a resurfaced track. But and it'd be interesting to see how all the traffic in Vegas rubbers it yeah, in. But-, but it's going to be pretty late in the year, like what, November? And it's a night yeah. race. Temperatures could be very, very. It could actually be the coldest race on the calendar. Oh, for sure. So, I, thought, I was wondering where you're going with that. I agree. Could I was, was leading you. I was like building the anticipation. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, it could be uh, one of the coldest races on the track. So you're talking about hyper cold track conditions, street circuit with walls. It could lead for one a lot of crashes, but a lot of difficulty that maybe the drivers aren't expecting. So it it'll be an interesting challenge for sure. I, that venue, the pomp and circumstance of that is going to be nuts. And so I'm going to watch no matter what. I don't have a lot of confidence that that track is going to lead to compelling racing. The layout, even with great conditions would be, I think, boring. And now if it has some of the same deficiencies that like a cutter and the surface and temperature has, yeah, it could be a bit of a, bit of a blowout, bit of a non- but, or it's a bunch of crashes and a bunch of yellow flags and just pure chaos. So who knows? I mean, what do we have to hope for at this point, Gerald? I mean, we've got the race for second. You know, we've got very little silly season probably to crop up. So that's kind of like a we'll take what we can get. Maybe Perez will lose a seat. I don't know. Just give me something. You know, well, we got Sergeant's race for, about the only thing. Well, actually, I wanted to talk about this because you talk about the declining popularity of the sport. And one of the uh-huh. things I feel like the commentators are really missing, they, they talked so much about Max and Max and the championship, but where is the commentary of Perez versus Hamilton? What are the implications for that battle? Mercedes versus Ferrari. Matter. But it's the only thing that nah. matters, and it's the only thing that has no. been to fight for for the last three so, months. I, I just don't think, think they're missing an opportunity to talk about the the competition of the sport more holistically, especially in a world where there is singular dominance in both drivers and constructors championships. 
on the constructor side, I totally agree with you because what's at stake is real dollars and real development time. So yeah, bring more of that context into into play about like what is at stake for Mercedes? What is at stake for Aston? I think this whole thing about you accusing Aston of tanking for wind tunnel time is pretty compelling. I don't think it's true, but I think if you laid out the implications of finishing fifth versus sixth, people could draw their own conclusions, and that would be an interesting conversation to have. So, like, I'm with you on the constructor side, on the driver side, dude. That's like saying you should talk about the guys that finished second and third at the Olympics in, like, a swimming race. Dude, dude, nobody cares. Like, nobody cares. Like, other than the guy who's on the top of the podium, there's no financial implications. There's no glory in being anywhere but the top of the podium in the in the hall of F1 history. I just I'm not that doesn't get me out of bed in the morning, man. Well, the, they have the, a need. The, so, the, but they're in media. They need to contrive drama. And you know what I think? Do it on the constructor side. But do you know what I think? Okay, agreed. Whatever side, I think you could do it on both. But they need it. Period. Right? Because yeah, agreed. Yes. But you know what I think they need? Who can drive up more fake drama than anybody? Mr. Will Buxton. <laughs> time to give him center stage because that man will Sorry. hype it up that's the only time, time you're going to gonna start... see me promote will buxton so we better call it at that because time to start paying him time and a half <laughs> <laughs> absolutely all right well uh, we're not getting paid time and a half so i think we call it here yep i've enjoyed it buddy always peace, peace.